0: We continue in our study, of course, in the book of Revelation this morning, looking at the passage that I just read for you, Revelation 8, 6 to 12. And in looking at this passage, we formally begin our uh, study of this section of the seven trumpets narrative. After last week, we approached it, we alluded to it, but we were kind of studying the nature of the transition between the seals and the trumpets. ...and the structure of the book of Revelation as a whole. So today we are formally beginning our study of this section proper. And an introductory note to today's study is is this. This It's just another interpretive principle. Kind of as we go, uh, I just hope that Revelation becomes clearer and clearer each week. And an introductory note that I would mention this morning is this. We must believe that Revelation was intelligible to all previous generations of Christians based on our doctrine of Scripture. What does 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 say? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So does this include revelation? Well, yes, it does. So we have to believe that the meaning of revelation was not locked, so to speak, to previous generations who knew nothing about events now present, or uh, happenings potentially on the horizon of history, like AI or things that we might perceive now as, as coming, Revelation could profitably be taught in all ages of the church, based on our doctrine of Scripture. So in the third century, you could open up and study Revelation and exposit it, and it could be profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. Likewise, the 7th, and the 8th, and 9th, and 12th, and 14th centuries, and likewise today. Now, remember that the first hearers didn't have Bibles on their phones, let alone even in their homes, let alone, frankly, even in their churches. Most likely, the first hearers had had the Old Testament somewhat accessible to them, but the letters the epistles, the gospel accounts were were circulating, and they didn't have it in a complete published form, 66 canonical books. And when they first heard Revelation read, they certainly uh, didn't have personal copies of it. They probably, many of them, only heard it read once, some of these first hearers. So imagine your total exposure to the book of Revelation was hearing it read from beginning to end once. That was probably the experience of many, at least, of the initial hearers of the book, though eventually it would be read again and again, and eventually copies were made, and eventually people possessed it in writing. But but consider that phenomenon, that many people would have only heard this once. It would have been profitable to them at least by way of the main message, which we could summarize something like this Jesus wins. Right? But again, based on our doctrine of Scripture, we should expect to harvest much fruit from a closer study of Revelation by those of us who possess it in written form. So even though people who just heard it once could get kind of the big idea, there's a huge war, at the end, Jesus wins. Okay. That was helpful. But if we're able to study it and look at it more in depth, it stands to reason that we should expect to harvest much fruit from such a study by those of us who possess it in written form. And this is because the Holy Spirit isn't going to inspire something that sounds good initially, but becomes increasingly more confusing and unintelligible the more Closely you examine it and the more you think about it Right, so the first hearers here Hear it read once and they go okay. Jesus wins. That's great The Holy Spirit wouldn't inspire such a book that you'd, you'd hear it once and be like that sounds really interesting Sounds really helpful. I'd like to study that more But the more and more you get into it the less and less you're able to understand it and discern and the more confused and perplexed you become Rather, we would expect that the Holy Spirit would inspire something that only becomes clearer and more helpful the more that you think about it and examine it closely. So to examine the trumpets closely and connect them to other parts of Scripture, including other parts of Revelation, is not necessarily to insinuate that the first hearers immediately grasped all of these connections the first time that they heard the book read out loud. But it is to imply that they theoretically could have made such connections, and that in fact they presumably would have made such connections if they possessed it in written form and had the opportunity to study the book in written form. Revelation can't mean what the first hearers couldn't possibly have understood, Rather, revelation must mean what the first hearers would have been able to understand upon sufficient consideration and examination of the book within the context of the rest of Holy Scripture. Alright, so with that in mind, let's look closely at the trumpet narrative this morning, drawing on the same material that the first hearers would have had available to them as we seek to understand the imagery of the trumpets And the meaning of them, therefore, within the context of the book of Revelation. And our first point is this. The trumpets, in the context of Revelation, signify God's holy war against his enemies. What do the trumpets in Revelation signify? Well, how could we go about answering that question, if not by looking backward at what trumpets signify in earlier biblical texts. And when we look back at earlier biblical texts, we see that the trumpets signify the following. Meeting with God. For example, we could go back to Exodus chapter 19 where the Israelites are at Sinai. Sinai. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain, and so on and so forth. So meeting with God. Or the beginning of the year of Jubilee. And other events in the Old Testament calendar. Leviticus 25 and verse 9 speaks about the beginning of the year of Jubilee. And it says, Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Psalm 81 picks up on this same usage. Psalm 81 verse 3, it says, Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. So Old Testament calendar events were marked often by trumpet sound. Then we have signals for assembly. Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 13, for example, says this. And in that day a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Or just over in Jeremiah, the next book over, chapter 4 and verse 5. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Alright? Then, announcing a new leader or king. Judges, chapter 3 and verse 27. After Ehud kills Eglon, it says, When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. 2 Samuel, chapter 15 and verse 10. Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet then say Absalom is king at Hebron and then finally signals for battle Joshua 6 at at Jericho I'm not going to read the whole chapter Um, I'll be referring back to this later on in the sermon but you you may remember that they were to go march around the city with trumpets for six days and then on the seventh day Huge trumpet blast and the walls came tumbling down Right? So uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter But Jericho 1 Samuel 13 And verse 3 Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines That was at Geba And the Philistines heard of it And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land Saying let the Hebrews hear Second Samuel 2 and verse 28 Joab blew the trumpet and all of the men stopped and pursued Israel no more nor did they fight anymore Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 20 in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there our God will fight for us Job 39, verse 24, speaking of the the war horse. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. In Ezekiel 33, again, I'm not going to read the, the whole passage, but this is where God sets Ezekiel as a watchman over Israel and says, look, if you see the enemy coming and you blow the trumpet, then you have done your part and the people are fairly warned. But if you, blow the, if you don't blow the trumpet and then the enemy comes and devours them, then I will require their blood at your hands. Right? So we see all these things and there may be some crossover like assembling into fortified cities, which is kind of assembly and kind of war. You know. But basically these are the main usages that we see in the Old Testament. Now, which of these fits best with the appearance of the trumpets in the context of Revelation? Is it the year of Jubilee, where hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown upon the earth? No. 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 Is it the people now meeting with God as at Sinai no though certainly we're going to see that God is present and God is active in this situation this is very different from God's beloved people gathering to him at Sinai and receiving a covenant and receiving the law uh, again we, we see here that this is destructive uh, second angel blew his trumpet something like a great mountain burning with fire it was thrown into the sea a third of the sea became blood etc etc are people being signaled to assemble? No. Is, there, is this the announcement of a new leader or a new king? Well, yes, at the seventh trumpet, which we will come to in due time, when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But the clear correspondence between the trumpets of Revelation and Old Testament usage... Is that these are in fact battle signals. That these are part of a war. And who is going to war against who? This is God's war against the wicked. And this is keeping entirely with Old Testament symbolism. For example, note takers. I'm not going to turn to all these passages. But Psalm 47 and verse 5. Has God marching out against the Canaanites at the sound of a trumpet. Joel chapter 2 and verse 1 has a trumpet sounding to announce the day of the Lord, which if you're familiar with the language of Old Testament prophets, that's a catchphrase. It's an idiom for eschatological judgment, the end. Again, Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 14 to 16 is talking about the day of the Lord. And it calls the day of the Lord, quote, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. There are other verses I could cite: Isaiah eighteen three, Amos two two, Zechariah nine fourteen. But I think you get the idea. And then the New Testament picks up on this imagery and has Paul saying in First Thessalonians chapter four and verse sixteen that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. This refers, of course, to the seventh trumpet in the imagery of Revelation, at which time the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Moreover, in 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 51 and 52, we read this. We shall not all sleep, which is a euphemism for being dead. (laughs) We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall all be changed. So what we have in the seven trumpets narrative in Revelation is a correspondence to Old Testament passages about God marching out with a trumpet blast against the Canaanites, and then a correspondence to Old Testament passages about the day of the Lord being a day of trumpet blast and battle cry, and then correspondence with New Testament texts indicating that Jesus' return happens at the last trumpet. At which time death is no more. And the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In other words, a complete victory at the last trumpet. Greg Beale notes especially the similarities between the Jericho narrative, which I alluded to back in Joshua chapter 6, and the trumpets in Revelation. Quote, Seven trumpets were blown by seven priests. And here in Revelation, the trumpets are blown by seven angels. The ark was present at Jericho. And in its heavenly form is also present in the heavenly temple around the time of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, verse 19. Interestingly, still quoting Beal, at the Jericho episode, there was silence directly linked to the climactic trumpet judgment which is a pattern found in Revelation 8, end quote. And to explain that point, since there is silence just before the seventh seal, which corresponds in our understanding to the seventh trumpet, since they are parallel cycles. Beale is noting that basically, just as you had in the Joshua narrative, this. Uh, Trumpet, 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 trumpet six times, and then a final trumpet, which is the cataclysmic decisive victory, so you have, if the seals and the trumpets are parallel, which I believe they are, you have trumpet, trumpet, trumpet six times, and then silence, and then the final trumpet blast, which is the cataclysmic victory and conquest of Jesus over his enemies. So in Revelation, the trumpets are battle signals as God carries out His holy war against His enemies. And they, they build towards the seventh trumpet, which is that final decisive victory of God in Christ over His enemies. At which time, Jesus descends, according to 1 Thessalonians, with the voice of an archangel, with the cry of command, with a trumpet sound at which time the dead in Christ are raised. Those who are still alive at that time will all be changed in a moment. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. This fits with the imagery of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and within the context of Revelation itself, as we understand the parallel cycles. So, again, just to summarize that first section here. The trumpets in the context of Revelation. Signify God's holy war against his enemies. We see similar language uh, used as the plagues in Egypt, for example, when God is doing battle with the gods of Egypt. You see hail and fire and blood, the waters being turned to blood, and darkness, and so on and so forth. So, what we're drawing on here is Old Testament holy war imagery. This is the judgment of God, or the the war of God, against the gods of Egypt, so to speak, against the Canaanites, against Babylon, so to speak. These are images and symbolism that Revelation is drawing on to show us that right now, God is in the middle of a holy war against His enemies. So if the seals were showing us that basically, in this time and space, we're going to suffer. There's going to be famine, there's going to be war, there's going to be difficulties common to all mankind, and there's going to be the persecution of the saints on top of that, which means we're going to suffer more than all people, but take heart, for there is a rider on a white horse who comes forth conquering and to conquer. Alright, that ends, that's sort of that replay angle, if you will, and now we're looking at the next cycle, and what's the angle here? The The next angle, the emphasis of this trumpet narrative, is on God's war with his enemies is on God's judgment towards His enemies. Now, note this well. Here's our second point. The trumpets symbolize God's holy war against His enemies. But note this well, and here's our second point. God is exercising restraint in His holy war against His enemies. We're just looking at the first four trumpets today, really. But look at verse 13, which follows... our our passage and introduces the fifth and following trumpets it says then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow that verse indicates that the trumpets that the judgments rather are going to get worse in the last three trumpets and of course in our understanding the last trumpet corresponds with the final judgment and so therefore that's obviously going to be the most severe as it is at the end of a cycle so in the first four trumpets which we're looking at today we see this the language of plagues basically and we see here that God is showing restraint in his holy war against his enemies now what happened in Egypt was the first plague the worst What happened? It escalated. And that's kind of what we see playing out here. As God goes to holy war against the gods of Egypt, we see an escalation. What about in Jericho? Was day one as bad as day seven? No. So again, you see an escalation. Consider with me. Could God have set his people free from Egypt in one day? Well, yes, of course he could have. It's not as if God was trying his best to get the people of Israel up out of Egypt and it just took a while, right? It would be irreverent and blasphemous to to interpret and to exposit the whole plagues narrative and the Exodus narrative that way. But he had the people go through this process and he had these escalating plagues prior to the climactic plague at the end. Likewise now, So there's the the plague illusion with all the similarities of hail and, and seas becoming blood and darkness and whatever. But consider with me now, shift our focus to the way this is drawing on the Jericho narrative. Could God have conquered Jericho in a day? Well, yes. Again, of course. But he had the people march around Jericho for six days. Before the climactic seventh day in which the walls came tumbling down. He had them blow the trumpets for six days the trumpets blew six times before the final trumpet blast sounded on the seventh day and the walls came tumbling down so was God trying his best to conquer Jericho each day and it ended up taking him a week again of course not of course not it would be irreverent to say so Likewise, is God presently trying His best to conquer His enemies day by day, here and now, and hopes to eventually overcome? So He sees the wars going on and wishes that He could bring the evil, evil powers that be down. That He sees the ideological... Evil being perpetrated as s- secular, godless, or idolatrous. Other idolatrous, but religious ideologies battle against the truth of Christianity. And does God is God trying each day to bring this war to a decisive victory? But just it's taking a while. No, of course not. Just like it was at Jericho. God could win the battle in a day. Just like it was in Egypt. God could win the battle in a day. Here and now. In this space and time. God is at holy war with his enemies. And he could win the battle in a day. He could win the battle in a moment. In fact we read that he will win the battle in a moment. At some future moment. (laughs) But in the meantime. God is exercising restraint now what might the reason be that God is exercising restraint listen to what God says in Amos chapter 4 and verse 6 I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places yet you did not return to me declares the Lord Now this phrase, cleanness of teeth, doesn't mean that he supplied toothbrushes and toothpaste to the nation. What this means is famine. It's symbolic for famine. There's no food to get stuck in your teeth. So you have cleanness of teeth. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So why did God do it? So Israel would return to him. Or Hosea, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not now find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Why did God hedge up the way with thorns and build a wall against these people? It was so that they would return to him. Why did God cause the the plague narrative in Egypt to stretch out for so long? Well, I think we see at the crossing of the Red Sea that all of this was designed to, to manifest and show forth his glory to Pharaoh and his army and in the Psalms we read that, that he got glory over a nation and its gods but I think we could also infer though this is admittedly somewhat of an argument from silence that it may have been so that the people of Egypt had a chance to change sides. Listen to what we read in Exodus chapter 12 when the people of Israel come up out of Egypt. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Listen here. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So the people of Israel left Egypt And people who weren't the people of Israel left Egypt. Do you realize that some of the Egyptians got pulled out of Egypt in the Exodus? Some of the Egyptians got rescued from bondage to idolatry and sin in Egypt. And came to take shelter under the wings of Yahweh when they came up out of Egypt. Perhaps the Lord was exercising His restraint for that very reason. People could look at what's going on, and some of them be like, I'm defecting. <laughs> if Pharaoh, I'm gone. Sorry, man. You're on your own. Right? Abandoned ship. All right, listen here. Why did God cause the Israelites to march around Jericho for six days before the walls came tumbling down on the seventh? Again, I admit this is an argument from Silas. <laughs> Well, we know that there was Rahab in there who knew full well what was going down and she had already changed sides. You remember? She had, she had said, remember me when you guys come and conquer Jericho and rescue me. Right? And they gave her the scarlet cord to tie in her window and so on and so forth. And Rahab lived out the rest of her days among the Israelites. Right? She was a believer in Yahweh. Now, as these guys were marching around for six days, what do you think Rahab and her family were chit-chatting about? Right? What do you think Rahab and her neighbors were chit-chatting about? You see? Again, I understand this is an argument from silence, but perhaps it was so that Rahab could tell anyone who would listen about the mercy of the God of Israel, Yahweh, under whose wings she had come to take refuge. Now we know from reading the end of the Jericho narrative that it was just Rahab and her family who were spared that temporal judgment. But perhaps, when we get to the other side of our Jordan River, as it were, we'll find people who were slaughtered that day, but not before believing what Rahab told them. It's at least possible. Alright? The explicit sorts of passages, like Amos 4, 6, or Hosea 2, 6, and 7 that I read you, about God warning and chastening and chastising people so that they would return to Him, fit together harmoniously with what we read about God's heart in other places in Scripture. Which also means that the hypotheses that I offer, which may or may not be true, I don't know, I'm not declaring them to you as uh, the Pope, ex-cathedra, but they would also fit together harmoniously with what we read of God's heart in other places in Scripture. Consider Ezekiel 33.11, which says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Or 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Which says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This paradigm also fits with what we read at the time of the sixth trumpet about those who were not killed by these plagues. This is in chapter 9 of Revelation in verse 20. Namely, that they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Can you not see in the trumpet narrative great restraint on God's part? Well, God speaks to the earth as it were and says, why will you die? Turn back. Turn back from your wicked ways and live. Why will you die? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God striking, an earth, striking a third of the earth and trees and sea and whatnot in the first four trumpets prior to the escalation of the fifth and the sixth and then even the fifth and the sixth prior to the seventh demonstrates restraint on God's part and that he just doesn't just bring the holy war to an end in a day in a moment. But there's plague after plague after plague. In fact, did you notice that when I read from Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20, these are called plagues? The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, which is a clear allusion back to the Exodus narrative, right? God sends plague after plague after plague upon the earth, showing great restraint. And after the sixth plague, it's John, the narrator, speaking. But it's almost a lament. Even after all these plagues, they did not repent. They did not repent. And I think what we understand of God's heart from other places in Scripture both explicit and implicit I think it's fair to say that John's heart is very much where God's heart is on this that after plague after plague after plague why will you die why will you die turn and live God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness this is promise of judgment by the way destruction but is patient toward not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance why why did Jericho not happen in a day? Why did the exodus not happen in a day? Why doesn't Jesus come back and just destroy all the wicked today? Well, I mean, maybe He will. Why didn't He yesterday? Let me, let me stand on safer ground. It's not because He's trying His best to win this war and it's just taking Him a while. Is because the Lord is exercising great restraint out of patience. He's sending plagues after plagues after plagues, cancers, car accidents, and towers of Siloam. He's warning again and again and again there are one third judgments. We alluded to this last week, but notice that it's a third of the earth and the trees and the sea and not all that is destroying these early trumpets. God sends one-third judgments, so to speak. Someone in your family experiences a tragedy. You have a near-death experience. Your life is miraculously spared in some way from this or that. Someone beside you goes down. You survive. All of these little one-third judgments are like these one-third plagues, where God is not striking you down immediately in your unbelief and in your rebellion against Him. There's great restraint on God's part towards His enemies. And even though He has begun waging holy war, He's not waging it entirely and fully and ultimately and decisively in full strength at this present moment. But He is patiently forbearing and enduring with a wicked world. Well, He manifests both the glory of His justice in pockets here and now, and He will reveal the glory of His justice fully and finally in the end. But He's magnifying His mercy. He's magnifying His patience at the present time. You realize what this span of time between the day they killed the Son of God and the day He came back to judge the wicked fully and finally and decisively, you realize what that span of time will emphasize in terms of what we see of God's character? Mercy. Patience. Forbearance. The fact that God just didn't just blot out this earth the second they picked up a hammer and a nail to put Jesus on the cross is unfathomable mercy. Though the Bible tells us very clearly, and I've stressed the point even in the exposition of Revelation so far, though the Bible tells us very clearly that many people will not repent, and that God will punish them. The Bible also teaches us that God is not a cruel, sadistic God who takes pleasure in the death of the wicked, but is rather a patient God who loves mercy. Now, you know, God's not a doting, soft, empty threats God. You don't play with God. There is coming a day of reckoning for each and everyone in this room. And if you haven't got it right with God, then you will feel the full fury of His wrath. You don't don't play with God. That's not not the way we should take His mercy and His patience. But listen, the fact that you're here under the sound of the gospel, the fact that so many have been all around this world over the last 2,000 years, is mercy and patience, unfathomable mercy and patience. Now this all leads us very naturally to our application this morning, which is this. Have you considered your own sin? The promise of God's judgment and the mercy of God. Look, the first six trumpets are sounding, as it were. And the seventh is coming. Will, will Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21 be your epitaph on your eternal grave? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Will that be what it reads for eternity over you? Abandon self-righteousness and throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Make war with your sin. Lest God make war with you. Recognize that God is not the enemy, but your sin is. Turn from it. Plead for God's mercy in Christ. Ask for His empowering strength to turn away from it, to walk with Him. Ask that He would take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That He would write His law on your heart. That He would cause you to walk in His statutes. Make war on your sin. Lest God make war on you. And secondly, in view of your own sin, abandon self-righteousness with respect to the judgment of others. If even God who is three times holy, as we sang, holy, holy, holy. If even God, who is holy, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but loves mercy, then how much more should you, a wicked sinner, take no pleasure in the death of other wicked sinners, but love mercy? Especially since that's an explicit command of God, remember? What does the Lord your God require of thee? Do justice. Love mercy. And walk humbly with God. Look, if we grasp the seriousness of our sin and the mercy and the patience of God toward us in Christ, then we should not be, even though we understand that one day the hammer will drop, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be sort of gleefully pleased about it. We shouldn't be smug about the fact that the seventh trumpet will blow and that God will bring down the full fury of His wrath upon His enemies. We should be those like God who love mercy. So in summary, God is exercising restraint in His holy war against His enemies. Let us take God's side against our sin and make war with it by the grace of God, seeking His mercy for it and His empowerment to abandon it. Let our sense of our own sin keep us from self-righteousness and smugness with respect to God's impending judgment of our unbelieving neighbors. Let us recognize that essentially the armies of God are marching around Jericho, so to speak and one day the trumpet's going to blow and the walls are going to come tumbling down and all we are is a bunch of Rahabs who are going to be saved by grace but while everybody's marching around and God is circling the city, so to speak we should be telling our friends and our neighbors and our family members hey listen, let me tell you what happened to me Yahweh was gracious to me let me tell you about Him He'll be gracious to you too let us adopt the heart of God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather turn rather let the wicked turn from His way and live. Let us, therefore, implore them to do so.